Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. The process of adopting a child can be long, laborious, and fraught with uncertainty. You never know when you'll get the call or how long it will take. And for Preeti Krishtal, she got the call late one night and jumped on a plane to be at the hospital across the country just 24 hours later. On today's episode, we talk to Preeti about her journey to parenthood, her thoughts about becoming a mother, wondering if it was in the cards and whether or not motherhood was right for her, and her desire to adopt. When she met her partner in her late 30s, on their second date, he asked her how she felt about adoption, and she was thrilled to find someone on the same page as her. But as always on this show, how we work and how we build families have interesting and overlapping intersections. Preeti is a human rights lawyer and is the co-founder of a company called iMac. They are a company focused on changing the way that people have access to medicines. Over 2 billion people live without access to critical, life-saving medicines that are often priced so high as to be unattainable. One of the root causes that they've identified behind this problem is the outdated patent system, which enables drug companies to get hundreds of patents and set high prices for extended amounts of time. This can be crippling to people who live in poverty. So her work is all about how to make medicines more accessible for everyone, particularly vulnerable populations. Today on the show, we are going to hear her story about her company and about how she adopted her kid and how the adoption affected her work, as well as what she has learned by becoming a parent. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Hey, everyone. Big announcement today. We are now opening our early bird enrollment for the Wise Women's Council. It is our year-long program and community mastermind where women can come together to talk about entrepreneurship, leadership, and parenting, and all of the messiness that happens in between. If you are interested in finding out more about the Wise Women's Council, the program, the coaching, and the guest teachers, check it all out at startuppregnant.com slash WWC. Go over to our website and look for the Wise Women's Council. Early bird applications are open. Regular enrollment happens through early February, and then we kick everything off together in March. It's a nine-month program for women who are navigating business, leadership, and parenting. Come join us. Everyone, I'm so excited to have Preeti Krishtal on the line to talk to us. Preeti, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell me about your morning. I would love to know what time you woke up this morning and what the first thing you did was. That's a great question. So this morning I got up at 6.30 and I just stayed in bed for about 10 minutes with my son. We have a ritual where he wakes up before us and for whatever reason, he just stares up at the ceiling and twirls his hair until we wake up. And then when we wake up, we stare at the ceiling with him and we all just have that moment together. So that's how we started our day today. How old is your son? He's 15 months. Oh, he's still so little or big, depending on how you think of it. 
Yeah, he's growing week by week. It's really amazing. He started running this week. So that was exciting. I feel like those toddler years, I'm constantly, my arms are out like, don't fall here, don't fall there, don't fall, don't fall. And it's, they get so mobile so quickly. I turned around yesterday and he had climbed up on a chair. And I realized that it's game over for us now. We can't turn (laughs) our backs even for a minute. Will you tell me about your parenting journey? Have you always wanted to become a parent? Was this something you knew that you were headed towards? Or is this something that, that kind of came up unexpectedly in your life? You know, I think I've gone through different ebbs and flows with that question. I'm 41 So when I was in my 20s, I thought that I wanted to become a mother someday. And in my 30s, I really went back and forth about whether it was going to be the right choice for me. And I met my husband when I was in my late 30s. And on our second date, he asked me how I felt about adoption. And adoption had always been my first choice. I just didn't know if I'd find a partner who also wanted to make that choice. So we had this magical moment on a doorstep where we were talking about it and we started the journey right then and there. That's so fascinating that you both had this idea of what you wanted. Can you tell us more about that conversation and then what transpired? Sure. He shared with me that he was a lawyer at a law firm for a long time. So he did a lot of pro bono work back on the East Coast with the Children's Law Center, working on guardianship matters with kids who are in the foster care system. And I had done a lot of human rights work around the world, uh, working with women and children and doing adoption placement, particularly with the HIV epidemic. So I had always assumed that I would adopt internationally. And he really shared with me that, you know, in his experience, there are so many kids domestically, who not only need homes, but there's a new understanding that open adoption is really important for children to have relationships with their families, with their birth families. And so he wanted to walk down that path. And I didn't know that. And once I learned that it was a possibility to you know, raise a child who could be in relationship with their family... I knew that that's what I wanted to do as well. So once you knew that this was what you wanted to do, what was the what was the experience like between knowing and doing? How long was it in between knowing that this was a path you were going to explore and deciding that you would start the process of becoming a parent? We started soon after that conversation to work with an agency before we even got married, because we knew it would take a really long time. And we worked with this incredible agency here in the Bay Area called PAC, who works primarily with newborns of color, and they have a very strong rights-based framework, which was important to me as a human rights lawyer. I wanted to know that children's rights and women's rights were going to be protected through the process. And it took us almost two years. You know, we had to go through a lot of education, a lot of training. There was a lot of uncertainty because you never know it could happen any day. And we had checked the box for something called sudden adoption, which means that you can get a call at any time and you could be driving to the hospital and bring a baby home that day. 
And that ended up being actually what happened to us. So after two years, we got a call on a Monday night. I was in New York. My husband was in D.C. for work. And we got the call. And they said, you have to be at the hospital back here in Berkeley on a Tuesday morning if you want displacement. And it was like a movie. You know, we raced home. We talked the entire way on the flight about booby names. And then on Tuesday morning, we drove a little boy home from the hospital. We became parents. You're making me start to cry. I mean, what uh, what I... I'm like, did you make it? How did you get the flight? Was was the weather okay? Like, did you, was it, you know, like how, what was that like to go from being in New York City to have to be in Berkeley? You know, I think that night really provides a snapshot of how my whole world changed because I was with all of my colleagues. My whole team had flown in for a staff retreat and I remember all of us sitting in a hotel lobby talking about whether I should go, what time I would go. And then an hour later, I was at the airport and I didn't know that the airport doesn't stay open all night. And so I was sitting outside until 4 or 5 a.m. You know, we were running. My husband took a train back from D.C. It was all very dramatic. It was definitely a scene out of a movie. And then the next morning, I have this image of myself driving back from the hospital with the baby in the car seat, not really believing that he was going to join our family yet, and then being home with him. And still, you know, I had my laptop out. I still had to work, and he was sleeping all day. And then it started to sink in over the next two, three days. I have a child. It was amazing. It's still there, still here. (laughs) Wow. What was it like when you met your baby? That's a great question. He was just so precious and we just couldn't believe that it was really happening. We had had a few near misses in the past. I think we had learned not to get attached to the experience. But I think in that room, in that moment, the social worker actually took a few pictures. You know, it sunk in that this was actually happening. And He was just the most beautiful thing in the world. And so now you have been parents to this little boy for 15 months, a little over a year. Can you tell us about what the first year has been like and how have you taken leave, if you've been able to take leave, to create your family? We have had a very unusual experience, I would say. My husband was senior patent counsel over at a big tech firm, and he just happened to take a sabbatical before our son joined our family. So he was actually off. And I was probably at the height of my career and my role as executive director of a nonprofit I was busier than I had ever been. I was managing a larger team than I had ever managed. And when our son joined our family, my husband said, I got this. I love newborn babies. This would be my dream to be his primary caregiver in the first several months. And I just remember thinking that is so amazing that that's what he wants because that's not what I want. I really enjoy 
when babies become, you know, somewhere between six and 12 months, when they start to interact, when I can actually show him things. And so I felt a little bit guilty about it because I thought, oh, is he about to be the mom? And then I asked myself, well, am I prescribing to gender norms that we just don't have, you know? And in the end, my husband spent the first three to six months of our son's life with him. You know, he was doing the skin on skin and the feeds and waking up at night and I was working. And then I took my leave when my son was nine months old. So between nine and 12 months. And we had this absolutely magical three months together. We were able to visit aquariums and go to the library and get in the car on a daily basis and just take road trips. And it was what I wanted. It was how I wanted to spend three months of my son's life with him during his first year. And I think my husband got what he wanted too, which is to really have that bonding experience. So it's not traditional, but it worked for us. It occurs to me that taking leave is something that is hard to do because it often comes up rather suddenly. And with pregnancy, at least you have an idea of like potentially when it might start. Although I've interviewed so many parents at this point, it's it's always kind of a guessing game because kids are born, born, born early. Things change, plans change. How did it work for you, uh, both of you, knowing that you were waiting until, oh, and then what did you say? It was sudden, sudden adoption, and it could be suddenly. How did you plan ahead to be able to take leave from your career at the drop of a hat? So at my nonprofit, we had spent the two years prior trying to bring some good policies into place. And that was because we were hiring a big team. We wanted to make sure that we were living our values and that we were creating a workplace where people really felt like they could take the time they needed as they became parents. And we did a few things I felt really proud of. For our size, we gave what we felt was a starting point towards really good parental leave. We had a transition back policy. We supported new parents who had to travel by being able to bring a caregiver. So we were thinking hard and doing a lot of evaluation of the sector to see what did other nonprofits or companies do and how could we be, you know, best in the field because that's what we wanted to be. And so before I went on leave, my deputy director, Martine Huey, went on leave because she had a baby. She birthed the baby. And we got to learn a lot from that experience too. You know, how do you prepare for leave? How do you assign work out to other folks? What work just gets dropped? Where do we need to hire consultants to help fill her role, both while she's gone and as she transitions back? And I think that experience taught us a lot. I was not able to replicate everything because I frankly didn't have any notice. I found out at 9 p.m. on a Monday night, and then by the next morning, I was a parent. But I was lucky that I'm in a co-leadership model. So I have both my deputy director and I have a co-founder and a co-executive director. And so I know that it was tough for them while I was gone. It was a lot of work. But I also think that we were able to design well for that transition. And how big is your team? How big is the team? So during this time, we had 10 staff members. 
which was the largest we had ever been. And it was really great because we had built a culture of people who our values were defined by authenticity and care and care meaning caring for the self, but also for the rest of the team. And we tried to embed that in how each of us showed up at the workplace. And so when that night, I remember being with all of them when I got the call and there was just such a clear sense of love and support that they would all have my back. I'm getting teary just talking about this, Mm. (laughs) but that they would all hold me through this. And yes, it would be new and it would be probably hard for the organization to manage in my absence and that they would figure it out, starting with that staff retreat where they had flown in from all over the world. And I was the one running the retreat and they said, just go. And they figured it out. They figured it out in those three days for the rest of the year. And then when I was on leave and I have an incredible amount of gratitude for all of them and how they showed up to support not only me, but I feel like they committed to the vision of what we collectively created and they walked the walk on that, which is a pretty amazing thing to witness. You're bringing up so many things that I want to dig into and ask you more about because I think these are things that so many company creators and founders and leadership members can empathize with and struggle with and and are trying to figure out how do you create such a strong vision? How do you create such an interconnected team? And how do you identify your values? These are not necessarily easy questions to answer, let alone execute on. So I want to ask you about each of these, but I want to take us sideways a little bit and first ask you to set some of the stage and the context. Can you tell us about the organization and how it started and and your role there, how you came to join this organization? Sure. So in the early 2000s, I was actually working in India on women's rights, and I fully started to be drawn to the health side of the work. So like I mentioned, I would represent women or children. I headed a legal aid office, so our team would represent women and children in all kinds of legal proceedings. And the ones that really landed in my heart were the ones where women and their partners would place their children for adoption a few weeks before they were going to pass away. Most often because they weren't getting access to life-saving medicines for HIV or TB or cancer, medicines that they could have received, but it was too cost prohibitive in India back at that time. And that work was so harrowing for me. It was so heart-wrenching to send these children to ashrams to live and essentially in orphanages, knowing that the medicines existed. So I started to focus more and more on that issue, which is why are there so many people in our world today who aren't getting access to the medicines that they need, even though the medicines exist. And so at that time, I met my co-founder, Tahir Amin. He was an IP lawyer, an intellectual property lawyer who had worked in the private sector for over a decade in England. And he had come to India to take a little time out, his own sabbatical, to reflect on the public interest side of intellectual property. And we met at that time and we realized that his expertise could really help us because a big part of the reason 
these women and families were not getting their medicines was because companies were taking their patent rights or their monopolies on the medicine and they were hiking the prices out of reach. And so when we realized that, we decided we wanted to set up a nonprofit that would really focus in on the patent issue to see how the system was not working for patients and families and to try to provide basically some legal firepower on the side of communities. And so what happened? What did you do next? So in 2006, we set up IMAC to work on the patent system to make sure that it was fair and that it was just and that companies were not over-patenting their drugs, which means they weren't filing dozens or even hundreds of patents on one drug, which meant that their monopolies would then extend out for decades and they could charge whatever price they wanted. So we did that in three ways. We filed a lot of strategic litigation in the early years, and the litigation was designed to basically break up these bad monopolies, not the justified patent, but the ones where the system was being abused. And in doing that, we were able to save health systems billions of dollars and put millions of people on treatment. So that was our original work. But we had always planned that we were going to do the litigation as one vehicle in order to change the system itself. And so from day one, we were educating patients and their families. We were putting out new data so people could understand the problem and trying to do storytelling in new ways so people would be able to advocate on their own behalf and then ultimately work on law reform. Because until we change these systems, we're not going to be able to make sure that people have access to the medicines that they need. And so over the last 15 years, we've worked in 49 countries. And most recently, three years ago, we were invited to come start a program here in the United States because it's still really crazy to me that the things we're seeing for patients and families all across America today are not that different than what I saw in India 15 years ago. People are not getting access to things as basic as insulin. So when it comes to women and mothers not being able to get things like insulin for their children, it really makes me just remember the early days of how we started, and it feels like things are coming full circle. And now we have the opportunity to really tackle the problem at its root. You mentioned somewhere that you learned a really important lesson before becoming a mother. I'm wondering if you can share what that is. Yes, definitely. And, you know, that lesson is something that I also apply to my work now. So it fits, I think, with both storylines of my life, which is I was right after the election in 2016. And I was at a conference in Atlanta with Echoing Green. Echoing Green is my fellowship community for social entrepreneurs. And at this conference in Atlanta, I got to meet with my chaplain. We have a secular chaplain at Echoing Green who works with social entrepreneurs to provide us spiritual guidance, straddling both our work life and our personal life. And he asked me what was top of mind. And I told him that I had really been thinking about starting a family and that I wanted to adopt, but that I also wanted to raise several children. And he has six kids of his own. So I wanted his guidance on whether at this stage of my life, because I was in my late 30s at this point, whether he saw that as being possible and what advice he would give me. 
And I will never forget what he said because it was so startling at the time. And he said, you know, you're going to fail at this. (laughs) And I thought, okay, well, thanks for that. And he said, you're going to fail and your happiness and your joy and the thing that's most important to you, Preeti, which is meaning, all of that is going to arise if you can accept that you're going to fail. You know, you're going to keep your kid up too late and you're going to be too permissive. You're going to be too strict with food and then you're going to be too lax. You are going to be their favorite one day and then other people are going to judge you the next. You know, there's going to be all of these dichotomies showing up on a daily basis. And the sooner you can accept that parenting and life is really about just trusting your own instincts, the sooner you can realize that that's the only important thing. Because everything you do can be judged by someone or yourself as wrong. Then there's liberation there. Then there's freedom in that moment. And I came home and I told my husband about the conversation because it really resonated for me. And now, you know, my husband is, he loves to joke around and laugh really loud. He'll often just yell, you know, let's go fail at something today. And (laughs) it's become kind of, (laughs) it's become really a guiding principle for us because there's so much freedom and possibility available when we just shift our frame. To being cool with failing. Oh, that's so interesting. So this actually lends itself really well to the follow-up questions I wanted to ask in terms of how did you build an organization where these values that you hold central to your life, both as a person, but also as a company, what does it look like to take something that maybe is a little esoteric and in the headspace of like, you know, these are the things we believe and bring them into the grounded everyday organization? That is a really good question. And it's making me remember one of these moments of failure, if you can call it that. I was in New York at a board meeting and it was a few years ago and my board just sat me down and they said, look, we think you need help. (laughs) And we are going to send you to a place called the Management Center. They have a training on managing to change the world. And we think you need it. And I went and so did my co-founder and so did Martine, our deputy director, and all three of us. I think it has fundamentally changed how we live and work. They provide frameworks for people who are trying to change the world, who are trying to live their values. They have frameworks for how you think about embedding that in your organization or institution. And so it was very eye-opening for us to realize the three of us have these things in common. You know, we communicate respectfully and we believe in nonviolent communication. We all have practices, whether it's mindfulness or meditation uh, or even sports, to achieve a kind of zen and peace that we like to bring to the workplace. But we didn't have language and we didn't have tools on how you can translate that into running a business. So that that was a big turning point for us. And then we also had very generous offering from Ted, you know, the fellowship program, who allowed my co-founder to work with a coach. And that coach ended up being with us for years. She's still with us and she coaches me as well. And she has really taught us important lessons for how important it is to articulate things, get your values down on paper, 
how you bring people into those values. And at the end of these few years, I can see that when I think about my staff, I don't know that they are all only with us because of the mission. I think people choose to be part of this container or choose to step into this circle of people because there is an articulated vision of how we'd like to live and show up in the world. And they have been part of co-creating that. And we're always evolving it and co-creating it together. And so there's a personal investment in actually holding the container. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what comes to mind. That does. And I... I want to repeat some of what I heard because I think it's so interesting. There is the idea that like you went to your board intervened and said, you know, you basically said, we believe in you and we want you to get better, which is a beautiful statement. Yes. He said, go to this management training. What did, what was it? The management center and get better at this thing that you're being called to do. And then you also had the support of a coach through TED. And it sounds like you've worked for a number of years on these particular skills. And I'd love to know at what point during the organization did that, uh, we can call it an intervention or or just gentle guidance. (laughs) When did that come up? Was it a year, three years? Like where was that in the lifespan of this organization? It happened after a decade. And for the first decade, we were a very small mom and pop shop. And it happened at the time when we were starting to think about scale. How do we hire more staff? What countries do we want to operate in? How many people do we want to impact? And as we made that transition also to growing our board, I think that's when the board really felt, well, you guys have a bigger vision now. And you are trying to do bigger things and you need to elevate to meet those challenges. I'll also say about our board, we have a women-led board right now for the last several years. And I do attribute some of these interventions to that. I think we have this really amazing group of women who are not only able to look at strategy and how you run a business, but are also able to really identify for us as leaders, where are the growth opportunities and how can we help them get there? And that's been a gift for me personally. Mm. The other thing I want to capture here that I hear you saying too, you said earlier, is the importance of articulation of when you're leading a team, the importance of getting behind a common shared vision and a shared language and being able not just to know where it is that you want to go, but to be able to articulate it. And it reminds me of this exercise we used to do in in one of the startups I worked at a number of years ago, where we would have an exercise called what is a tent? And we would design a camping trip that we would go on and realize that everybody's idea of what a tent is, is different. Some people go glamping and they like have big fancy, you know, <laughs> some people take RVs, other people are taking like, like Patagonia REI, you know, hammock tents and they're going mountain climbing. And there's just, even if you think you're like, hey, you grab the tent and you have to get a little more specific about the thing that you're doing together. And you're reminding me how much how much time and energy it can take to to be really precise about your language in terms of goal setting and shared visioning. That's interesting because I do think we have two annual team retreats every year. And it was a big shift for me to realize what you're saying. I would plan the retreats initially 
to be all substantive content about the legal cases and the policies we wanted to change and data and metrics. And our coach, who I mentioned, Catherine Handen, who came through us via TED, she would just make me put the brakes on that. And she would really try to convince me early on of the importance of building relationships and a shared sense of purpose. And I would just run my hands through my hair and think, wow, this sounds really, I'm a lawyer, you know, this sounds <laughs> really touchy-feely for a room full of lawyers and scientists. <laughs> but by the second retreat, I was sold. We were sharing our families with each other, our grandparents, our history, our sense of purpose, where it comes from, what makes us tick. And I think through that relationship building, we were able to also serve each other better because a big part of what we were trying to do is make sure we were designing for happiness and for an experience that 20 years from now, people would look back on it and say, wow, that work experience stands out to me. That organization, that time in my life stands out as the time when I felt happiest, but also like I had the most purpose. How is the organization today? Is it still 10 people? And can you tell us a little bit about where you are heading? Sure. We went through a funding, I'll call it a down cycle, where many of our major grants ended. So today we are four people again, and we're looking to grow. Our team is spread out all over the country. And our next big challenge now is that we are taking on some of the most powerful forces in our economy today. The pharmaceutical industry, as you know, is extremely powerful, is extremely well-funded. They have a thousand lobbyists to every one of us. And yet, we continue to believe that there is even there a shared sense of purpose, that what we all want at the end of the day is for people to get medicines that they need to stay alive, and that there is a world that's possible where we are coming up with new cures. And right now, I think it's a bit of an adversarial relationship with the industry, because we are definitely fighting the fight to make sure You know, we're in such a unique moment in U.S. history where drug pricing is poised to be one of the number one issues in the upcoming election. So how do we maximize that opportunity to change the conversation, to make sure our decision makers understand that unless the system fundamentally changes, people are going to continue to either die or file for bankruptcy The strain that this is putting on families and households across the country is unimaginable, honestly, in the richest country in the world. And so we're figuring out what are the most strategic levers we can pull and how can we use this quiet period to rebuild, to take all the lessons we learned from scale in the last two to three years, uh, redesign where we need to. And I think there's certainly areas of learning where we're figuring out How would we build this machine when we scale again and then get ready for next year and the year after where we hope to grow exponentially and start to build the staff and build our programs to take them to the next level? I'm curious about what you've learned through this building and rebuilding process because I have heard from so many people that entrepreneurship seems so 
glamorous and sexy to have an idea to go chasing a dream. It's like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to change the world. And what no one tells you is, or maybe we should say more often is, are you ready to build it a hundred times and then a hundred times again? And how are you going to feel when you're rebuilding and rebuilding again? Because I think that grit and tenacity is, for me at least, I'll speak from my experience, one of the most challenging pieces of it all. And so I'm curious Mm -hmm. for you, what have you learned in going through rebuilding and realigning yourself and your team? I think that's exactly right about building things over and over again. I did not understand that, certainly, in the early 2000s when we first built iMac, that even now, 15 years later, we're rebuilding over and over again. So I think there's a vision in some sectors that a startup means that you started and then it somehow stabilizes or you transfer it (laughs) to somebody else. (laughs) Certainly in the nonprofit sector, that's not true. And so I feel good about it still. I think for our leadership team, we all love to design. We all love to learn and grow. And so that part is okay. I can say that I never come to work feeling like I'm working. I wake up every day and I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. So as long as that feeling remains, I will keep staying with the organization and in the access to medicines movement. What is something that somebody listening to this can do about this big, messy, difficult problem that you're working on? How does a layperson get involved or even begin to sink their teeth into something this big and complicated? You know, I get asked that question a lot. And I think what needs to happen right now in America is that we need to shift culture around innovation. I think educating ourselves is the first step. And I think it's a big step because This has a lot of moving parts. The prices of medicine has to do with how drugs are developed, which has to do with our innovation economy, and has to do with the underpinnings of our economy and all the wealth inequity that's happening today. And while it does seem like a vast area of learning, I think until more and more members of the public are willing to spend that time to educate themselves, to be informed to speak up on behalf of families and communities who are really suffering because of the inequity in the world today, I don't think we can reach that next step of reimagining and building a more just world. Well said. I want to turn now to ask you about a couple of things that I know you have written or spoken about. One of them is about mentorship. And you have this quote that you shared with me, the pie is always bigger. And I'm wondering if you can share this story. Sure. So one of my mentors is a woman named Cheryl Dorsey. Cheryl was one of the first African-American medical students at Harvard. And during her time at Harvard Med, she started a mobile clinic because she realized that African-American mortality in the greater Boston area was higher than anywhere in the nation. And she was a social entrepreneur. And a few years later, she decided that if she ran Echoing Green, which is the fellowship program that I'm a part of, she would be able to support many other social entrepreneurs to scale their visions. 
And so she stepped away from her direct health work to do that. And that's how we met. I was an Echoing Green Fellow. They provided me with the seed capital, without which I probably wouldn't be here today and IMAC wouldn't exist. So during that relationship, she and I forged a closer relationship. You know, she really takes the time to mentor everyone, but really women of color in particular. And one of the things I learned from her is that we as a sector, as the social justice or nonprofit sector, really fall victim to this idea of scarcity mentality, that there's only a finite amount of resources. And so we have to compete for them. Because unlike the for-profit sector, where there are other metrics for success, revenue being first and foremost among them, with social entrepreneurs who are working on the nonprofit side, resources are one and recognition is the other. And it can really lead to this competitive mentality. And that has never landed well for me. It has always felt very uncomfortable to be in that space. And Cheryl sat me down one day and said that the pie is always bigger. And don't ever forget that. And that was a huge turning point for me because I really believe that. I believe there are so many resources in this world and we can attract them to all the causes that need more capital, more visibility, and that if we are able to build with others, for example, in my movement, the Access to Medicines movement, you know, with all the other nonprofits thinking about, well, how do we raise the visibility of this cause? How do we make sure that more and more people know that we can prevent this cost to human life if people would just understand that people are dying all over the world today because they're not getting medicines that exist. And in doing that and making it a, just like with our team, right? If we can make it a shared vision, a shared sense of purpose, and then if we can broaden out even more and do that with other movements for equity and justice, then the pie is always bigger. We can continue to expand it by strengthening the power of our tie. And that has been an extraordinary lesson for me and one that I use to infuse and inform my work on a regular basis. Mm. This is so interesting to me and so important. And there are a couple of recent examples that come to mind, one of which I'll share. I was talking to somebody of a different generation than me, and we were talking about when women in the United States started to enter the workforce. And they mentioned, well, when women entered the workforce, they took all those jobs away from men. And I had this like record scratch moment where I was like, what, what do you, <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, how do you think this works? Because I have a different point of view on this. And they said, well, once you have a lot more people enter the job market, then, you know, there's more competition for the jobs. And I said, well, what about all of the people that became business owners, all of the women entrepreneurs that created new companies and new jobs? And she said, oh, I'd never thought about that. And it was a moment. So interesting. Right? It's a moment where I was like, wow, so there's so many ways mm. to look at this. Like we both see the world and something changing and we both drive different conclusions from it. And sometimes I get caught, more than sometimes I get caught thinking the pie is shrinking or that, you know, there's competition. And I have to remind myself that there's more here. And what's the unique thing that I can add here that's different? And how does this actually create more, not less? It's a, it's a really interesting and I think difficult psychological framework for a lot of people, myself included. 
That's exactly right. There's a beautiful way that a spiritual teacher named Tara Brock talks about this, which she talks about how over time humans have been conditioned for this fight or flight mentality, for this scarcity mentality. So it's also not our fault that we think in terms of scarcity, but if we do the work to shift our consciousness, to shift away from scarcity and to think from a frame of abundance and expanding that abundance that we actually can get there. Mm. It just takes inner work. And I, I find that so beautiful and so inspiring to listen to her talk about this because it really is true. Mm. I love that. How did you personally get into doing the inner work and the meditation and the spiritual work? Where does that come from? I think that I grew up in a family where healing practices were just part of our fabric. I have aunts who are Reiki healers and who do acupressure and a number of other modalities. So that frame was always present in my life. Meditation in particular, I came to when I was going through a very hard time in my 30s. And again, I was blessed enough to have friends who intervened. And one of my friends said, you are coming with me to a week-long silent retreat. And that's that. And I went. And in that first week of sitting in silence, my whole life changed. It's If you haven't done it, it's an extraordinary thing that can provide so much healing, so much shedding, so much regenerative inner practice without even the thinking mind being involved, like from the cellular level, I think things are reborn and transformed. And after that first retreat, I just stayed with the practice. It's been eight years now. I still continue to go to silent retreats. I try to do the work on a daily or weekly basis. It's related to work that I've done as a mindful movement teacher. And so it's really always a work in progress, though, because we fall off and then we come back to it. And there's a lot of accepting that it's a process, too, in order to be able to just keep finding your way back to it because it's so, so good for you. I am a little bit lost in thought just because I'm thinking I did go on one of those retreats and now I'm daydreaming about going back. (laughs) You're, <laughs> you're inspiring me. And now I'm just like, when can I plan a retreat? So I'm I'm getting out of my present mind for a second. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, which is funny, which is funny. Oh, I had one more question I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you about, there's another one. You said uh, you had a hard time in your mid thirties. Can you share a little bit about that? Or is that something you want to skip over? Sure. No, I, uh, I, my marriage was ending and I think that I was just really lost about what life could look like after, you know, being in a partnership for a very long time. I was committed to this idea of conscious uncoupling. I was committed to the idea of transforming the relationship into a friendship in a way that brought to life all of these practices of love and justice and compassion, but I was really struggling in terms of what life would look like. Would I be a mother at some point, you know, and what would it mean if I wasn't going to be a parent? And so 
that's really, I would say, rock bottom for me was uh, not knowing what to do, where to go. And I was just so fortunate, again, to have friends and community who really stepped in to hold me in their light and to give me these tools. My meditation tools were really just a gift from friends passing them on. And it's something my husband and I, he too came to his practice through the ending of his first marriage. And today he is a meditation and mindfulness teacher and coach. And both of us really strive to understand how can we continue to re-gift these gifts that we've been given. Hmm. One of the things that comes up for me personally when you say that is that these tools are so useful and I find I have the biggest blocks when there's the most pain. When self-examination seems like it will be just incredibly difficult, that's when I will do, I will out psychology myself by putting up every single barrier possible. How do you find a way in or back to the practice when you've lost your way or when things feel challenging or difficult? I think the first time is the hardest because when you are struggling, when you are going through something that feels that challenging or painful, oftentimes there's a lot of shame and fear or even anger that comes up and that can serve as a block to finding the things that can probably serve you the most. So I think that first time, if you can take a leap of faith, to move towards the thing that you feel ashamed or afraid or angry about that other people have said could be a source of healing or support for you. Once you experience it, I think that you will find your own way back over and over again, or you'll, it may not work and you'll find the tools or practices or supportive structures that can work for you. I think the quest for that then becomes a part of your life. But it's just that first time that takes that leap of faith. And I would encourage everyone to just take it once. Mm. Now I have the last question, which is something you said about a journey towards having difficult conversations. There's a thread I see here in all of this, which is the learning to, to see and to articulate and to communicate. And you have written a little bit about having difficult conversations. Can you talk about this? This is a more recent learning for me. I would say in the last two years, as I evolved to manage a staff of 10 people, as I started to have to negotiate more in the world with donors and a child, you know, having a big family, I have learned that historically, I very much feel like a peacemaker and I like to be very diplomatic. I like to bridge gaps by bringing people together in a very kumbaya way. And it has been a major learning for me that the aversion and maybe even fear that I have to having difficult conversations, to providing difficult feedback, to raising difficult conversations, that actually is a door that if you learn how to open that door, it can land you and the other person in a better place. And I think like many people, the way I saw difficult conversations before was that 
if I raise feedback with you or if I raise with you that I want to talk about a tough topic, it evokes this feeling even saying it, right? It's like the worst feeling. I don't want to do that. It's going to be terrible. That person's going to be mad. That person's not going to understand me. There's so many assumptions and emotions that come up around that. And really, this is my learning from my husband, who spends a lot of time on this topic, is that you learning to have those conversations is always actually going to open the door for a better environment, relationship, partnership, and situation. And as I've learned to practice this and flex this muscle, it was very tender at the beginning. And now I actually have excitement. If I realize there's a situation where there's going to be a difficult conversation, I have a shift in energy. Before it would be aversion in my chest. Now I feel I almost light up a little. You know, it's like, cool, we can talk about this and then things are going to be better. And I have that faith. And if I was going to share with people, if there's one thing you can do to make your life better personally, at work, everywhere, this would be the thing to focus in on. Hmm. Sounds like an area of continued learning. Are there resources that you have used or relied on for figuring this out? Or has it been a kind of like in the lab, studying it as you go kind of experiential practice? Well, like I mentioned, I have been very lucky that I live with a coach. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I hit up for the free coaching, but he's written about this topic too. And so I've leaned on some of the writing around how you navigate these conversations, how you prepare for them. And I've taken that with me. I really keep it with me at my desk and continue to assess as situations arise. Is this an opportunity to practice this new skill? Recognizing it's going to be hard 25 times before it gets easy. I love that question. I'm writing it down. Is this an opportunity to practice a new skill? Because sometimes that's what it is. Life is asking us to carve out a new set of skills. And it's so easy to go lean back on the ones that we already knew. Preeti, where can people find out more about your work, both the company and then also you personally? Is there a place that you post on social media or write or blog? Sure. So my Twitter account is probably the best place. I'm at Preeti Krishtel. And our organization is I-MAK, the Initiative for Medicines, Access, and Knowledge. And we're at www.i-mak.org. We will put those links in the show notes for everyone listening. Thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing so much of your story with everyone listening. Thank you, Sarah. This is great. I really enjoyed it. And that's it. That is a wrap, everyone. Thank you so much to each of these women for joining us on today's episode. They have given you a sneak peek inside the Wise Women's Council and the types of conversations that we have as parents and entrepreneurs navigating this messy world of work and parenting. If you are interested in finding out more about the Wise Women's Council for next year, please go to startuppregnant.com slash WWC. That stands for Wise Women's Council. We'll have the link in the show notes and you can also find it in the main menu on our website. The Wise Women's Council next year will have three different 
tiers. So you can access the community at three different in three different ways. The first way, you can join the community for the social space and for the monthly calls. The second way, you can join a small group coaching program to go deeper with a group of six to eight women. And the third way, you can work one-on-one -on -one directly with me and we will have one-on-one -on -one private calls to really unpack and unlock big moves in your life or in your business. So check it out. There's three different access points next year. We haven't ever offered it this way before, so we're really thrilled to see what y'all think. Go check out startuppregnant.com slash WWC for the Wise Women's Council and do apply by January 20th for early bird pricing. The prices will go up if your application is not in by the 20th. I hope to see many, many of you applying and here is to an amazing 2020. Hey everyone, just a heads up and a reminder, if you want to listen to our long form Ask Me Anything sessions, they are 30, 45, and sometimes 60 minutes in length, and they we go deep into questions that people have. If you want me to look at your business, you want me to comment on your marketing plan, or you have a question about parenting, pregnancy, or anything in between, we are taking listener questions and I answer them in a monthly Ask Me Anything fireside chat. It's available only to our Patreon supporters. So if you back us at the $7 a month level, you get access to this private podcast. You can get access to all of the past episodes, which is pretty cool. So if you're missing the podcast while we're on our hiatus and you want to take a listen in to these Ask Me Anything episodes, go over to Patreon and become a monthly backer at the $7 per month level and you'll get access to all of the future episodes as well as all of the past episodes. Keep in mind that you are also supporting the work of Startup Pregnant and our growth in these early days and that matters a ton. Every dollar helps and counts and we appreciate so much and are grateful for your support. Patreon.com slash Startup Pregnant will take you right there. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Did I spell that right? Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Yes. Patreon.com slash Startup Pregnant will take you there. The link will be right here in the show notes. You can go straight there. $7 a month and you get access to this entirely exclusive Patreon-only podcast. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.